Well, good morning. My name is Willie. I'm one of the pastors here at Wellington, and it's my privilege to kick off our, uh, our Christmas series, The Arrival uh, Foretold, which, uh, of course, goes with our Christmas musical theme, which is called uh, The Arrival. You can turn to the book of Hebrews in your pew Bible. It's page 1001. Uh, let me just pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, I thank you for the Christmas season. I thank you that we get to celebrate the birth of your son. I thank you that it is uh, so much more uh, than simply holidays or uh, programs or presents. There is so much more significance uh, to this season that you call us to. And I pray that as we open your word, as the book of Hebrews announces your arrival, uh, that you will speak into our hearts and our minds the things that we need to hear this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story is told of President Roosevelt, who was the 32nd president of the United States. He served from 1933 to 1945. And apparently, uh, as the story goes, uh, Roosevelt was tired of all these events that he had to go to, all these, uh, you know, dignitary functions. We have to meet all these people and you have to shake everybody's hand and, and uh, all these things that happen. And so... Uh, as he you know, had to do the receiving line all the time, he really started to wonder if people were actually listening to anything he was saying. And so at one of these events, he decided he was going to have, have a little experiment, uh, perform a little experiment. So as people were coming down the line and he's shaking their hand, he muttered kind of under his breath a little softly, I murdered my grandmother this morning. <laughs> to see what people would say. And people would come through the line and they would say, uh, God bless you, Mr. President. Oh, you're wonderful, Mr. President. That's wonderful news. Like, they would just go on, not really listening to what he's saying, until the ambassador for Bolivia came through, apparently. And the ambassador for Bolivia heard President Roosevelt say, you know, I murdered my mother this morning, or my grandmother this morning. And he leaned in, the ambassador leaned in, and said, she probably deserved it. <laughs> Not sure if it's a true story. If it is, I'm sure you'd hear about it in Bolivia today. Uh, but you ever notice that people don't listen? And like, people talk, but we, we're generally poor listeners. And God has been speaking to us from the very beginning of time. And I guess my question is, are we listening? Are we listening? God does not mutter. You know, God is not subtle in his communication to us. He doesn't stutter. But from the beginning of human history, he has been communicating with us. Telling us who he is, how he loves us, and what his plan for history is. And the perfect revelation of God is Jesus. And the perfect revelation of Jesus is the scriptures or the Bible. And in that revelation of Jesus, what we see with Jesus is how he understands the very longings of our hearts, the things that we are often afraid to even mention because we don't want to be disappointed, the things that we worry about, the things that we cry out to God for. And we all have them. The human condition is the same around the world and throughout history. Recently, I came across a little anecdote uh, about uh, the famous actor, uh, producer, comedian, Woody Allen. And Woody, Woody Allen was a well-known uh, atheist. He also made some uh, very poor personal choices that were all over the media for a number of years. 
And apparently at one point he had an interview with someone and the person said to him, Mr. Allen, I know you're a self-proclaimed atheist, but if there were a God and if that God should speak to you, what would you most want to hear him say? And Woody Allen was quiet for a moment, thought about it, and then responded with these words. I would most want to hear him say three words. You are forgiven. So even as an atheist, Woody Allen is speaking the desire of his heart because he knows his own brokenness. And I think it's that same desire, the same longings that we all have, really saying, God, would you accept me? Would something, someone greater than me, there must be something bigger than me in this universe, a reason for my existence. And God, if that's you, would you accept me? Would you forgive me? The deepest longings of our hearts, that we have value as human beings, that we are accepted for who we are. And because God has spoken through Jesus, there are answers to those questions. There are solutions to our problems. There is forgiveness for our sin. There is healing for our shame. There is strength for our fear because of the arrival. See, the arrival changes everything, absolutely everything. It's not just a commercial season. It's not just a warm, fuzzy season. The arrival, what we call Christmas, actually changes everything. And, and what that looks like, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses of this great book. And it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's this amazing statement. In the original language, it's one sentence that opens the book of Hebrews to declare the glory and the wonder of how God has spoken and spoken ultimately in Jesus. It's interesting that Hebrews opens different than any book addressed to a group of people. It doesn't address with any greeting or anything like that. The author just jumps into a sermon basically and starts extolling the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. Why does he do that? What is the context that this book is written to that the author thought this was how he needed to start? Well, let me give you a bit of backstory uh, on Hebrews. So the Christians that this is written to are Jewish Christians. And the, the Jewish Christians are living in an interesting time uh, in, in this group of people because they're a part of the Roman Empire. And historically, the Roman Empire has viewed Jewish Christians as a sect of, of Judaism. And so they were actually given a special pass and the special pass was, we'll allow you to worship God rather than worship Caesar. Because to be a Roman citizen meant that you agreed to worship Caesar. Because Caesar was deified in their worldview. So if you were not worshiping Caesar, you were a traitor. You were a political and spiritual traitor. 
And so they said, well, okay, you're part of the Jews. You know, we've conquered them, so we're going to give them a pass. But now the Jewish Christians were being seen as separate from Judaism. So they were no longer getting a pass. And their lives were becoming difficult. At the same time, they couldn't go back to Judaism because the Jewish community was saying, no, no, you accepted Jesus as the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. And so you're not like us either. So now they're stuck between the Roman Empire. They can't go that way. Or they're seen as revolutionaries. They're seen as traitors. They can't go back to the Jewish community because they're seen as traitors there as well. And so now in the midst of this, we know that persecution is ramping up. We know that some of them have stopped worshiping together because Romans chapter 10 verse 25 tells us that. We know that some of them are considering abandoning the face because, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 29 tells us that. And so we know this tension is happening. They feel like they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, to use that saying. And they're viewed as traitors by both communities. And they're becoming spiritually, relationally, politically, economically sidelined. And they're asking God, God, where are you? God, why are you not helping us? God, why aren't you here? Doesn't that sound like questions that we ask today? When we're struggling, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayer the way I expect you to? Why is my life becoming more difficult? These are all things that we struggle with today. And now the author of the book of Hebrews is speaking into that context. And what he is speaking into that context is to say to them, the Jesus you believe in is greater than the context you came from, than Judaism. The Jesus you believe in is greater than the persecution that is being threatened by the Roman government. The the Jesus you believe in is greater than anything and everything, than anyone and anyone, is what the Hebrews author is telling us. What I find fascinating in this text is that he is also not just not simply saying to them, you know what, because this happens to us, right? You come into a difficult time and people will say, well, you're right, you have it tough, but so-and-so, they have it so much worse. So really, your situation is not that bad, right? People try to encourage you, encourage us by talking about how difficult other people have it. And then we go, well, okay, compared to them, you know, my life's pretty good. As my kids would say, you know, that's a first world problem. Right? Other people, they have third world problems. You know, they're looking for food, shelter, clothing. We're good. But the author to Hebrews says none of that. He isn't saying, let's minimize your problem. What he's saying is, Jesus is greater than any problem. Jesus is bigger than. He's more wonderful than. He's more spectacular than. He knows you better. He is more present with you than anything or anyone else. That is what the author to the Hebrews is saying. How does that play into our lives and their situation? Well, I was thinking about this, thinking about the first century as where Hebrews is written, and then I think about our world today. So we live in a time when everything is supernatural, right? Just turn on the TV. Every second show is about something spiritual, something supernatural, but nothing is absolutely true in the, in the world we live in today. Right? Truth is completely subjective, but everything is spiritual. Canada is probably more spiritual today than any time in its history in the broadest sense of that word. And you can see it all over our culture. And so TV shows are filled with supernatural plots, supernatural characters, angels and demons and wizards and vampires, uh, you name it. It's, it's, it's on constantly in some form. 
At the same time, we live in an age of political correctness in Canada, an age where where society is trying to dictate what you can think or say, and if you place a boundary on anyone else's thought, then somehow you are violating that principle, unless your thought is politically incorrect, and then it's open season to harass you or shame you. So this happened the other day. I don't know if you caught this in the news. A simple little ad uh, that ran on television for the Peloton bicycle, uh, a fitness bike. And this, this was all over the news in Vancouver because the key actor, or not the key, the secondary actor is a teacher from Vancouver. So the, the, the ad is very simple. He decides to do a great thing and buy his wife a bicycle, an exercise bike for Christmas. And, uh, and so he's on screen for five seconds. Gives her the bike and, and she loves it and she's like, this has changed my life. That's the punchline to the ad. Suddenly on social media, they're saying, oh, that is so rude. He thinks that she's less of a woman because she's not fit enough. He thinks this, he thinks that. So suddenly he's become this absolute jerk. He's on TV for five seconds. And here's the worst part. Here's the reflection on our society. This last week, he was receiving death threats on his personal social media account because he was an actor for five seconds for a, for a fitness ad. So suddenly now he's being shamed. And when he's, he's playing, he's an actor. I mean, it's not even his opinion. But that tells you where our society is. Why is it that way? Well, there's two streams that run through our society. And I think this is what makes Hebrews so significant for them and for us. The two streams, uh, just to simplify our world, that are in our schools, that are in our world, in our media, our politics, it's all around us, are naturalism and relativism. I'll give you the, the five-second uh, de- definition. Naturalism is the idea that everything comes from nature as opposed to the supernatural or the spiritual. That everything is from nature. Nothing stands outside of nature. So you are here because of the random forces of nature that led to you uh, becoming a person, and that's why you are here today. You have no greater value than the seat that you sit in because it's just a, it's just a product of nature. That's all you are. The other school of thought is relativism. Relativism is a worldview where truth is a social construct. In other words, you create your truth, I create my truth. I can't say that your truth is any better than my truth or any different than my truth. We just all create our own truth. That's really what relativism relativism does. That's why I can determine my gender, my identity, my values based solely on my personal opinions and feelings. History, Uh, biology, science, none of those things matter. It is purely my personal opinion and my worldview that matter. The God of relativism, relativism, which is seen as the God of universe, is ultimately a God of hopelessness at the end of the day because there is no belief system. Relativism offers no hope. And you know how I know this is impacting our society? All you have to do is look at our mental health statistics. All you have to look at at is the increase of depression, the increase of anxiety, because we are living in this tension of we feel like we're created for a relationship with a creator, with, with a God that is much greater than we are, and we're told that that is not true, but we cannot become our own gods as we keep trying to pursue that as society tells us to, and the dissonance is in our souls, in our minds, and in our hearts. And it shows up in anxiety, it shows up in worry, it shows up in stress. More in North America than anywhere else in the world. And it's into this that the author of Hebrews speaks. 
As I said, not by minimizing the challenges we face, not by minimizing the questions, but by saying here's the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the one who was sent. So we begin in Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. See, God has been speaking to us since the beginning of human history. God has been speaking to us since the beginning of human history. And he's spoken many times. He's spoken fragments. He spoke uh, a little here, a little there. Often he's spoken various ways. He spoke through visions. He spoke through angels. He spoke through events. He spoke through people. He has spoken through the created world all around us. Psalm 19, the first four verses, gives this great picture of how God has spoken through creation where the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God has spoken through creation, through the law, through the prophets, through poetry, through history, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. God spoke through prophets like Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and on and on and on. He has continued to reveal himself. I love the definition of the word prophet. It actually means to one who boils over. What do they boil over with? It's actually the presence of the Holy Spirit speaking through them. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God speaking through people by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And over 300 times in the Old Testament, the arrival of Christ is prophesied. The one who is coming, the one who will save the world, the Messiah, the Savior, the ruler of humanity is coming. Over 300 times we're given that. So from the beginning of time, that has been written. The one who will heal our separation from God. Secondly, in this last season of history, God has spoken through his son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 tells us, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Last days is a phrase that is, would have been very common to, a, common to a Jewish community. They viewed the world as the, as the present age and the age to come. And the day of the Lord is what stood between those two ages. And so in the last days, it's saying, now God has sent his son. The arrival has happened. And in that, the kingdom of God has been introduced. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God through his teaching and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And he says, the period we are in is the last days. It's a theological reality. He's not talking about chronology in the same way he's talking about theology. This is the reality. That the presence of God has come through Jesus. The old age has passed away. The time that we are longing for and waiting for, for God to act, has come through Jesus. The new age, the age of God's kingdom. And when God spoke through Jesus. It was climactic. It was definitive. It was superlative. Think of the best adjectives you can think of. Think of the most eloquent language you can think of to describe the reality of what has happened in the arrival. That is the beauty and wonder of this season. The reality of what Jesus did when he came, as he lived, as he taught, 
And then he took, and then through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And the kingdom of God became a reality. And God wants us to hear him. God wants us to listen. To listen past the voices that are all around us. The voices that say to us, you can create your own God. You can be your own God. Gods of sexuality, gods of success, gods of personal achievement, gods of family. Take whatever background you're from and you know what the gods of your family or you know what the gods of your culture are. And every society around the world has them. And the enemy's goal is to try and make us our own God. To try and get us to believe that same lie that was perpetuated in the Garden of Eden. You can be God. And yet Hebrews declares, no, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And it's like the arrival is this declaration. It's like you've run through a barricade in a road and God is standing there with a big sign, hey, bridge out. Stop. This road leads to death. And I have sent my son so you can have life. I have sent my son so you can have life. And then he goes to explain it further. The reality of who Jesus is. Jesus has been given all authority by God. What does that look like? Jesus is heir of all things. So verse 2. The author says that Jesus was appointed heir of all things. Ultimately, all things are under his control. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 says, putting everything in subjection under Jesus' feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God left nothing outside of Jesus' control. There isn't Jesus plus some gray zone. There isn't Jesus plus some minor rulers outside of Jesus. That's not how it works with him. Jesus is over all. He is the heir of all things. He is the ruler of all. There is no God No power, no force who stands in authority over creation, over you, over me, over nature. Jesus is the heir of all things and all things have been given to him to rule. That is who he is. Here's the implications of that. Because often we say, well, you know, each person has their own truth and people will say there's many, there are many roads to God and look at all the world religions. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3 actually do not leave room for that conversation. You look at the description of who Jesus is. He is all, he is heir of all things. He is all powerful. Everything is under him. That means that actually the conversation of other world religions actually cannot hold water to the one of who Jesus is. Because every other world religion says, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. Uh, Jesus was a prophet. Uh, Jesus was uh, one of the most significant people in history. Hebrews 1 says, no, that's not even close. That's not even close. And to say he is less than God is actually to make the Bible and Jesus a liar about himself. That is actually what the text is telling us. And you say, well, that sounds harsh. That sounds exclusive. Well, friends, if it's true, it's true. Here's a simple reality of truth. Because people say, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. Well, no, friends, true is true. Here's how I live with truth every day. I'm a diabetic. Okay? There's this great little app that I have. And I get to check my blood sugar this way. So I, there's a little disc that's on my arm. If I want to check my blood sugar, all I do is this. Done. Hey, 7.0. That's good. 
I'm in the green zone. If it's higher than that, I can't say, well, you know what, I don't believe that. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to go have another muffin. <laughs> right? You go, well, wait a minute, your meter says that this is what your blood sugar is. Well, I don't care. That's the meter's truth. That's not my truth. Right? That's what we do when we push aside what God says about himself and about Jesus. We say, oh, that's your truth. Well, no, truth is truth, friends. And we know that every day because every day there are things that we deal with where we go, well, that's wrong. That's inappropriate. I'm offended by that. You need, to, you need to apologize. Well, why? Well, because you violated me somehow. Oh, no, that's your truth. That's not my truth. No, we live it every day. We know there is absolute truth in just how we function absolutely every day. And that's what it tells us. Truth is truth. Jesus is heir of all things. And that is the truth that he rules. Jesus created the world, uh, the next statement in the verse tells us. Through whom? Jesus. Also, he, God, created the world. God worked through the Son to make the universe and time and space. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. So Jesus didn't create part of the world. He didn't create some of the people. The text says he created all of it. Absolutely all of it. The act of creation throughout the Bible is always ascribed to God. And God says, through his word, this was done by Jesus, which means Jesus is God. That is the simple reality of what the text is telling us, friends. It insists upon that identity. And if that is true, then you and I are created by him which means we can have a relationship with our creator, which also means that if he created you, that means you are significant. It means you are loved. You have a purpose. It means he knows you from the inside out. He knows you how you were formed in your mother's womb. And whatever your story is, it says he knows your story. He loves you. Whatever you have done, there's, there, there is love from him for you. Whatever's been done to you does not marginalize you because of shame. Because the creator knows you because he created you. That is the reality. And then it goes on to say, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. The text says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the epitome of God's glory. Jesus is the masterpiece of God's glory. Pick whichever way you want to describe that. Jesus is the pinnacle of God's glory the best of the best of God we see in Jesus because Jesus is divine. If you look at Jesus, you see God. Jesus is the perfect reflection of who God is. If you want to know what, who God is, look at the Son. Look at Jesus. That's what it's telling us again and again and again. And you see God not through a proposition, not through information. You see him through a person, the person of Jesus. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, he is not saying, I am a proposition. He is not saying, I am the information about God that you need to know. What he's saying is, I, Jesus, the one you have a relationship with, am truth. I am the living truth. I embody truth. This is who I am. And so you meet him through a person. That's why when you actually read the word of God, you're not reading it for information, you're reading it to meet a person. Is there good information there? Absolutely. 
but you're reading the word of God to meet a person, the person of Jesus. Text goes on to say that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. So all that Jesus did, all that Jesus does, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus taught reveals the Father. Jesus said in the book of John chapter 14, who has seen me has seen the Father. Right? That's why the Jews were so upset at him. John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? The Word is Jesus. Not just a great teacher, not a prophet, not just a man of God. Jesus is God. Naturalism says that we are just here as a set of random circumstances. Relativism says that you can make your own God. Jesus says, no, I am God. And if you want to know your creator, you need to know me. If you want to live in a relationship with your creator, live in a relationship with me. There is no one and nothing outside of ourselves other than Christ who can give us that identity that because he created us. Naturalism and relativism are road, dead-end roads to purposelessness. That is the reality. Life with Christ, in Christ, in relationship with him is actually where purpose is found because you can only find purpose in relationship to the one who created you. Text was on to say that Jesus holds the universe together. It uses the word, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The word upholding doesn't mean holding up like he's carried on his back, holding it up uh, like uh, the picture of the Greek strongman. It's not that idea. What, is he, what it's saying is he's holding and carrying it from one place to another. In other words, he's holding all the universe together. He's the one who determines the course of history. He's the one who ensures the course of history. He in his power is the one who brings it all together. It is because of his power that history will follow his divine plan. It is, it is because of his power that we can have trust in him and his purposes. And his arrival through his birth was the announcement of his presence and work among us. And that, and that because of his work among us, history will conclude with his return the way he promised. Where there will be justice for all. There will be no more, t- no more crying and no more tears. Our bodies will be made whole. And everything that we long for, the deepest portion of who we are, will be our experience if we are in relationship with him. And the thing that he has created is the unshakable kingdom, which is so profound in a world that's shaking around us all the time. Even this morning in the news, they were speculating as uh, the leader of, of North Korea was saying, oh, I have a gift for you, President Trump. And CNN's worried, going, what is the gift that he is talking about? Right? The world is shaking. In the midst of that, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So what's the response to God's unshakable kingdom to the great work of Christ? It is worship. Worship with your life, worship with your voice, worship with your heart, worship with your attitude. What does our worship do when we worship? What does it do when we sing the songs that we sang? We're saying, God, you are God and I am not. You are the one that I trust. You are the one who is glorious, not me. You are the one who is holy. You are the one who rules over all. That is the beauty of who he is. 
Fifthly, Jesus tells us that he wiped away our sin. The simple line, after making purification for sins. So Jesus, the one who has been prophesied throughout history, the one who has power over all, the one who is heir of all things, the one who upholds the universe, is the one who, who breaks the power of indwelling sinful nature in us because of his death and resurrection. He is the one who so simply and wonderfully takes our sin and our guilt and he says, I'll take that on myself. He's the one who takes our shame, wherever that may come from, from our family, our culture, uh, from failures we have. And he says, you know what? Give that to me because your identity is not in your family. Your identity is not in your culture. Your identity is in me. That's where it comes from. He's the one who takes our fear and says, I've conquered every fear because I've conquered every spiritual power. And there is no spiritual power who can stand against me. They are all subject to me. So whatever spiritual attack you are under must be subject to the power and authority of Christ. Whatever shame anyone tries to put on you from whatever background you're from has to be subject to the reality and the power of Christ because your identity is with him. And whatever guilt you feel, you leave at the cross because Jesus said, I paid the price for that. The purification of sin. The beauty and wonder that he is saying to the, to the Jews addressed in the book of Hebrews. This is who Jesus is. And I love the grammar that is used here because purification for sin and the grammar that is used says this was done once and for all, for all time, never to be questioned again. Jesus doesn't have to purify you of your sins again and again and again, even though you sinned again and again and again. He goes, no, taken care of, just bring it to me. It's done, I took care of it. Yeah, but I just, this just happened this morning. Yeah, bring it to me, done, taken care of. That is who he is. That is what he has done. And he will bring history to that ultimate, final, and proper conclusion where that sin nature that you still struggle with will be removed once and for all. You'll receive your, you already have your new identity, but you'll receive your new body and live in a relationship with God's people in God's presence with the Son. Hebrews 2.17 tells us how he accomplished this amazing work. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, the arrival. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And that is what he did. And that is why, lastly, Jesus is supreme over all others. Jesus is supreme over all others. And Hebrews puts it this way. After he purified, make, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To sit down is to say, well, the work is done. My work is finished. And he rules from that place beside his father. Where, all of, where he's guiding history because he upholds by the word of his power. Or rather, the power of his word. And history will culminate. And he says, this is who I am. And, and so the author of Hebrews is saying to the people, again, whatever your situation in the first century, Romans or Jews, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Friends in the 21st century, whatever your situation, whatever your fear or your worry, whatever your pain, whatever your hope, whatever your question, Jesus says, I am all powerful. I'm greater than any of those things. And that's why you can bring them all to me. Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your fear. Come to me with your pain. Come to me with the struggles you have. Come to me with the pressures of your workplace. Come to me with your family issues. But the place this begins is with relationship with Jesus. 
the one who was foretold from the beginning of time, the one who's heir of all things, whose power reigns supreme, who purified us for our sins, who sits at the right hand of God to rule, our great high priest. My prayer for you is that you experience the wonder and the beauty and the glory of that is written about in Hebrews 1 to 3. I cannot, I read the text and as I was preparing, I said, I do not have a vocabulary that is eloquent enough to do justice to this text. Because this text is so wonderful. It is so glorious, so superlative, so overarching because of the arrival of Christ. So this is my prayer for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else. Not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head of all things, for the benefit of the church. So for the benefit of God's people that God has called to himself, and the invitation for you this morning is to be part of God's family or to celebrate that you are part of God's family and to take whatever that question, whatever that struggle you have, and give it to the one who is supreme. Let's stand for closing prayer. I just... I want to begin by praying for anyone who wants to take that faith step of relationship with Jesus. If you've never done that, you can pray quietly with me. Um, And if you pray that prayer, you can go to the folks in the Welcome Center or Prayer Center, and they'd love to help you take some next steps. And then I will pray for all of us. So if you want to make that decision this morning, simply pray with me. Jesus, thank you that you are God. Thank you for coming to this earth for being just like me, for struggling like me and being tempted by sin but not giving into sin and then being that perfect sacrifice to remove, pay the price for my guilt, to remove my shame, to conquer my fear and to give me an identity as your child. I give my life to you. Come and forgive me and make me your own. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and walk with me this day forward. Show me the implications of everything I just prayed in being your child. And help me grow in this community that loves you and will help love me. And Father, I pray for all of us because we walk in the doors here this, this morning whether we know you or not and often we have questions, often we have concerns. Sometimes we come in celebrating and we get to lift our voices in worship to do that and say thank you God for who you are. But Father, I know that you want to meet us exactly where we are. So whatever we walk in the door with, Lord, I pray for everyone who knows you, they would take those things and rather trying to be our own God, rather than trying to control, rather than trying to make things work out the way we want, we would give them to you. Give you our questions, give you our pain, give you our hopes, give you our fears, give you our families, our jobs, whatever those things are, Father, because the greatest and safest and most wonderful place for any of those things to be is in your hands. Because we are your child and you are sovereign and you reign. And so we thank you that we get to be your children and celebrate your arrival. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.